Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I am delighted to share a presentation from the 2018 Mobile and Clinical Trials Conference featuring Eli Lilly reporting on incorporating multiple mobile devices into a clinical trial. The speaker is Joseph Kim from Eli Lilly. The 2019 Mobile and Clinical Trials Conference takes place September 16th in Boston. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Joe Kim, who's been with this conference and with D-Pharma pretty much since the beginning and has been a really, uh, really strong voice in this entire space, potential, uh, really particularly in this space when it comes to thinking about uh, the, the people at the middle of our trials, right? The, the, uh, the reason we do trials is to learn about people and the people about whom we learn uh, have to be kept at the center of all this. And, and so I think that uh, Joe's been a really strong voice uh, for for the person, for the patient, for the subject uh, participant, we change our language frequently, but but the point is that, that those are the folks who matter, and a lot of this work is oriented around how to make trials good for the people who are a part of them. And so uh, Joe's going to talk about Lily's most recent efforts in that space. Thank you, Joe. Clickers here. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, this. Um, so, <laughs> right, I got it. Um, so I want to intro this talk with um, a LinkedIn uh, by referencing a LinkedIn post I made recently. Some of you may have seen it. I don't. I don't often post on LinkedIn, but when I do. Um, I drink Dos Equis. Actually, that's, I hate, I hate Dos Equis, so um, I prefer tequila, actually, with Mexican food. Anyway, um, so the, the post at, on LinkedIn was around, hey, can we finally get someone to figure out how to get data that's specifically for clinical research and send it off using a, a wireless data account that doesn't hit the patient? And I'll explain why I made that. Um, I, I, I posted that um, question to LinkedIn uh, through this through this presentation. So that was it wasn't exactly a Trump tweet, but as I was reviewing this presentation, I got really frustrated. I'm like, why isn't anyone doing this sort of thing? So it was it was some good back and forth. Jeff and I had a little back and forth about around it too, um, and we're still friends. So um, anyway, you'll see why I sort of um, uh, actually uh, posted that question to LinkedIn. Um, I also want to give uh, a level set everyone here because I don't know that everyone has drank the Kool-Aid around this stuff, which we should probably start using, stop using that. Everyone died when they drank the Kool-Aid, so we should. Anyway, so I, I want to give brick-and-mortar trials a fair shake um, and actually contrast that with why we're even thinking about mobile. So uh, brick-and-mortar trials, I think we all know and somewhat love them. Uh, I think a lot of people think they're, they're old-fashioned and you know past their prime and that, that sort of thing. Not necessarily. Um, here, here's why brick and mortar trials are, are good, right? All the equipment is there. So if you have one site that's going to see 20 patients um, or, or three, right, and you have a device that's measuring something, it's, it's, it's one device. It sits at the site. Uh, it's done consistently. It's done um, professionally. Um, if, there's, if it's broken, you can just swap out that one device. And so there's a lot of good things about brick-and-mortar trials, and I don't want to demonize any of it, 
And I don't think they need to go away at all, right? Like people thought the internet would destroy uh, uh, brick and mortar retail. Like, not really. I mean, yeah, it's less, but I still like going to the store and squeezing the tomatoes. Um, but there are limitations, right? So when you're capturing things in a brick and mortar way, um, you're often, that model is characterized by a few key limitations around brick and mortar that are driven by the brick and mortar model. One is if you're relying on a patient to like remember, like so in the past two weeks, have you had any AEs, right? So this is kind of this recall heavy model isn't great for science, I think. I mean, there's a better way to actually measure it instead of asking or relying on recall. Um, because these visits don't happen every day, because you, you, it's, it's too burdensome, Right, they happen every week, or every two weeks, or every month. And so this, there's a low frequency of interaction, and you're only getting these sort of point bits of data throughout what's actually happening continuously. And someone had another slide that showed the pie graph of like patients, and you know that little sliver is where, is really where you're going to see the patient. The rest of that pie chart was, was really what happens when the patient's not in the, in the, um, in the clinic. And depending on the disease, this often doesn't align with the disease management, right? So take diabetes, for example. They're dealing with stuff on an hourly basis, minute to minute. And you're going to go in, you know, once every two weeks and say something about that? How, how great is that science? I mean, I guess it's been good enough, but is that really the pinnacle of scientific thinking around diabetes? I, I don't think so. And so all this then ends up with this sort of lack of precision, I would argue, right? Is this the most precise way we can gather data, um, right? A couple hours every two weeks? Um, probably not. We can do better. So that's the sort of the, of the main argument from M Health. I would I would argue is that it addresses some of this stuff head on. You don't have to remember. It can measure. We're, we're going to measure it, not ask. The frequency can be as frequent as you want it, right? 24 hours if you want it. Not to say that you should, but you can have it more frequent. It will align with the disease process, particularly something like diabetes or migraine or you know, other things that happen throughout the day and will happen oftentimes outside the clinic. Um, and all that means things can be more precise. So to the extent M Health is more precise science, that's a, that's a great reason uh, to sort of think about it. So that's the Kool-Aid. Let's not use Kool-Aid anymore. That's the doctrine. That's the iced tea. Yeah. Um, and so that's why we're all kind of here. However, when you start to think about mHealth and all this good stuff scientifically, there's this question about autonomy now. And autonomy, like all good things, casts a shadow. Right? Autonomy, to some degree, means a patient can do is in control and can do what they want. That's the bad thing. The patient's in control and can do what they want. And if there's not enough competency hooked in with autonomy, bad things can happen. Um, some of them bad and some of them really bad. Um, so I have some examples there. So hopefully that sort of level sets the unindoctrinated to why M Health is really good, but also gives brick and mortar trials a fair shake. Um, so let's talk a little bit about M Health in brick and mortar. Um, so the nice thing about M Health in brick and mortar, if you introduce something mobile in the brick and mortar setting, it's pretty easy. It's qu it's quite nice, right? You train up the staff, you get them to help the patient understand how to do it. The patient goes home, does their stuff, comes back, 
and then the site can then say, hey, did you do this right? Maybe there's some re-coaching. So it actually is pretty straightforward in a brick-and-mortar model. Um, so what I wanted to do is dive into this sort of case study. I'm not going to really talk about the science per se, necessarily why we did it, although it might come up just incidental to the, um, to the talk. The, the images are just for illustration. Um, so we did an mHealth study um, recently, both in a brick-and-mortar um, setting and a virtual setting, a remote setting. And we did this mostly to try and get our feet wet with remote trials. Um, we just happened to also throw in devices, um, which was a good or bad thing. Um, it, it posed some interesting challenges, which I'll talk to uh, in, gr in greater detail. Um, so essentially, it was a, uh, an insulin pen, uh, a CGM, and we needed this laptop because these things weren't totally ready to send data to the cloud by themselves. So the laptop was kind of our data interface. So the implementation of the brick-and-mortar site, uh, we had the laptop at the site, we had the CGM and the pen, there was some coaching and training, the patient took that home, did their normal disease management and used the devices as per the protocol, you know, then they would bring it back and then the site would then um, with a dongle, actually, send it back into the cloud, and we were, we were all good to go. So that was very straightforward, actually. It wasn't the hard part. Um, when we had to think about this for a remote setting, right, what if there is no site? Like, how does, how does this all... We had, the, we had the staff there, like, helping the patient do everything. Like, now what? So the remote implementation looked a little bit different. We needed a mobile nurse. So the nurse came. We also had the device sent to the home, came out of a box. So we had the laptop, the CGM, and the pen. Um, but this, this, because they weren't connected to a clinic with reliable Wi-Fi, we had to add a MiFi device. And so this is where my LinkedIn post came from. Why do we have this MiFi device if we could just have a phone that sent this data only to the cloud? Now I have to deal with this MiFi device, and that's what got me angry. So the, the training happens the same with the mobile nurse. Um, for, you know, within the within the, when the next visit was due, the mobile nurse came back, and then there was the same kind of interaction. Let's make sure you did everything right. We'll hook up the, the device to the laptop, and then we'll use the MiFi to send the data into the cloud. Okay, so let's get into the what ifs. Let's get into the lessons learned. Let's see what happened. Did we control for things that happened? Did things happen that we didn't control for? So what if? What if the device was lost by the patient or the M health nurse? So the way we controlled for that was was one, we crossed our fingers, and two, um, we, um, we kept the devices at the patient's home. What we didn't want to do was have the nurse have to lug around all the devices. So we were like, all right, well, let's just keep it at, at the home, and let's hopefully we can coach the patient enough to be like, don't touch this until the nurse comes. That was essentially what we were doing. And we crossed our fingers there. Um, and for the most part, it worked, except for when we get to the third bullet point. I'll talk about that. Um, staff changes, right? So there are some home health nursing companies here. Um, 
It's not always the same nurse all the time. And these folks have lives and careers change and whatnot. Um, so the, the, training, the training program for these nurses had to be top-notch, right? They had to know exactly what they were doing. Fortunately, this is a very easy protocol, but you can imagine the more complicated ones can actually get really hard to do, especially if you have a mobile nurse component because that nurse changes out. Unlike the brick-and-mortar site, remember, that's all happening there. That, yeah, that staff changes out, but not all at once, right? So you're, you're typically going to have people there who know, remember what's going on. You get a new person, and sure, they can coach them. But with the nurse, it's that one person, and you're relying on him or her to just be like the expert all the time. They leave. Well, you need a new expert. Um, can't control the use of MiFi. So you send a MiFi device out somewhere, it's... It's not looking at what kind of data is coming through it. It just takes data and sends it through. So our one of our one of our fears was that someone would like this is the old like put it on a dog thing. Someone would use it for for not the study, right? And it turns out that happened. There was a patient who used the MiFi, and no lie, on a Saturday, like 10 gigabytes of data went out. It's like what the Turns out this person took it on a vacation and like had their kids streaming videos probably like on the ride, right? That happened, like, ugh. Now imagine if we had enrolled 500 patients this way and 10% of that my, those MyFi's were, were, it's not everyone's nefarious, but 10% of these the MyFi's were sending data to that. That's why I had that LinkedIn post, like, we need to find a way to send only the, the, um, the study data out through a, a channel. Uh, the other thing is this ratio between nurses, patients, and devices. What if that gets kind of upside down, right? Like I said, each laptop went to a patient. Now, if the patient, if we, only enrolled, we only enrolled nine patients remotely, and that wasn't the highest enroller. Um, but unlike the brick-and-mortar site where you have one laptop, right, and they can see 100 patients, so you only need that one laptop, we had to send out nine laptops, nine MiFi's. How does that scale? Like, oh, my God, right? Fortunately, we didn't, it was a small study. They were only going to enroll, you know, nine or ten patients, and so we could afford that. But that is something that, that we were very sensitive to. And yes, if the, the technology was slick enough and you didn't need these laptops, sure, it's not a problem. But we're not all there yet. And the laptop or some intermediary piece of device might be required to start getting something verified or validated before, like, truly the technology is all self-contained. Um, so these are the kind of what-ifs that we had to grapple with, and some of which came to pass, as I said, some of which um, uh, you controlled for. Um, so I'm happy to take some other questions. I'm sure I didn't think of all of the what-ifs, and maybe you guys thought of some what-ifs that didn't happen, so we dodged bullets there, and that's okay. Um, but uh, any, any questions? Stay thirsty. So, Joe? Yeah. Um, as far as how do we send the data just from our study somewhere else, are you familiar with the Verizon offering that they have called Freebie? So it has an app that you can have. The problem is it's just Verizon. But if you have that app, you can connect it to your app, and then it can send just the data, and you can get billed for just your data. So that is an option. Um, so you need the app on some, so thank you. Yeah. Um, actually, I just met this guy, Brian Burke, mm -hmm. who works for Verizon, and is focused only on clinical research stuff. Um, what, what was the name of it again? Freebie. Freebie? Yeah. Okay. Joe, I, so almost all of the, the big uh, 
telecoms all offer this right now. Um, so these are mobile device management systems. You can always buy a MiFi with a mobile device management system. If you were running nine, it wouldn't be worth doing. But we use these things all the time, and they allow you to control which machines are linking to your Wi-Fi, how much data they send, when they're allowed to send it, all that stuff. Machines and and an app. Okay. Well, that, yes. I mean, basically, if you're a company and you give someone a MiFi for your company. You don't want your kids, uh, the kids of your employees, using the MiFi. So we're not the people it was designed for. It's designed for your traveling salesman. You have a MiFi. I don't. I'm going to deploy 10,000 of these to my traveling salesman. I don't want the kids of the traveling salesman doing exactly what you saw. So we regulate the use of the MiFi using a mobile device management system. And all of the big companies will do this. This is a really easy thing to do. You just go talk to your AT&T or Verizon. Or, yeah. Helpful, thank you. So everyone knows that you can do this at a device level. If we could do it at the app level, it sounds like we can do it at the app level. Um, those of you who are developing ePros for us, like if we can help get away from some of the BYOD, and this is, this is one reason why we do it still. Not the reason, but it's one of them. And we have to start tackling these reasons one by one. So we've got a few minutes. Hello. Yeah. I appreciate it for your brilliant speech. I come from South Korea. And it was very hot is blockchain system and connecting the patient experience. But do you have any idea to uh, sharing the data or to get approving uh, approving for patient uh, consent or anything? Have, do you have any idea in blockchain system and connecting the your patient as M clinical trial system? We haven't used any blockchain yet in clinical research at Lilly. I know there's a lot of talk, and where's Munther? He is the biggest fan, I think, in the room of blockchain. Sometimes we fight about it. Um, <laughs> but we're both believers. I just think there's limited use cases. But I, I think that could be something to think about in terms of identifying data that is coming. Is that what you're using it for? If this is a way to accurately identify data that's associated with the trial? Is that where you're headed? Because in Korea, South Korea, is telemedicine is not allowed. Not so the most important thing is to uh, get, uh, get on the uh, consent of the patients mm -hmm. and approve how can we manage it, how can we guarantee it that all consumers is concentrated on blockchain too much. <laughs> it's beyond the, the, our technical environment. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know that block blockchain needs to be the solution to, to solve the consent issue. I think it helps, but the issue sounds slightly different, which is remote consent, period, is not allowed. So if that's not allowed, I can't imagine something. There are two kinds of concern. Blockchain, one of it is a reward, a new kind of reward for a subject. And the other as the data uh, sharing our concern. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I can speak yeah. to much of that, but talk to Munther. He's, he's, he's a resident. And we, and we do have a pretty explicit set of conversations around data sharing and a workshop around data sharing later in the day. So that may, may come up again. I, I think this will be a different sort of comment or question from Cindy. So I'm Cindy Gagan, and I am the patient voice speaking later today. And I just have to give Joe a little bit of a hard time here. 
as it wouldn't be the first or last. It, won't, it will not be the first or the last. It's hard being the sole patient voice sometimes. But I just, the autonomy comment you made, and then you equated it with competency, mm -hmm. as if the patient is the only incompetent player in the the chain as it... I'll clarify this, that. It's but defined it's right me. now. I'll take my lumps. But, 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 but no, I, I just had to give you a hard time because it's not just you. It just You just hear things differently when you're yeah. a patient. My question really is, though, is how to launch this. Was there a patient voice in this other than the guy who drove on vacation with the <laughs> Wi-Fi device? But was there some patient input you, you got? Not, not for this particular one. Um, only because we were... We're not trying to prove the efficacy of a drug. We just wanted to get our feet wet with the operations of it. In terms of the patients themselves, um, most were very, very successful. And the reason why we knew they would be successful, this competency thing, is because um, patient the, the inclusion-exclusion criteria was patients who are already using a CGM and a pen. So we knew that competency would be there versus saying, hey, patient, you've never been on a CGM, come and do this, and then not supporting them, we're not helping them to get competent. So we, I recognize that competency doesn't just happen, and if you don't support, provide support, it's not going to be there. But if you identify that certain patients are competent because they're natural CGM users and pen users, then we had, we had zero problems in the data. Thanks, Cindy. So, uh, Joe, comment about patients' uh, voice in it. I think um, one of the reasons where we are, are where we are with clinical trial, legacy clinical trials, and we may dis disagree on how good they are or how bad they are, I tend to think they're sat completely right now in the system, just is not uh, rescuable except some situations we really have to have a brick and mortar situation. But one of the reasons why we got where we got is because patient's voice was completely ignored. Uh, it was arrogance of academia. Um, arrogance of pharma and arrogance of consultants. What, what are the patients to tell? To, uh, who are they to tell me? I'm the master of the universe. And here, when you're um, shifting reliance of quality of data, compliance, and ability to operate those devices, um, I think the industry will be successful eventually, but why... Um, taking a hard road, maybe because it's pharma, everything has to be hard. But it's really simple. Ask these people if they have been using it um, in the past. They have much higher success, that's our experience, with people who already um, are familiar with telemedicine, both on the um, provider side and on um, patient side. If you're trying to introduce a telemedicine visit to somebody who's never done it, both um, on the side side, and patient side. Of course, your learning curve will be much higher. Um, we've learned during our crowdsourcing process to design clinical protocols, there are patients who have been using wearable devices, and they really are experts in it because they do it in their healthcare management system. And not Fitbits and Trivials, things like that. Many much more sophisticated devices. So to me, not asking patients is just plain stupid, I think. And it doesn't take it a lot to have their feedback in, into this because they have to be in this very, very yeah. strongly engaged from the very beginning. I don't disagree with you. I think, so to make it clear, if you saw what all the what-ifs, none of the what-ifs was, what if the patient didn't know, like we knew that the patients could do 
what the, we were going to ask them to do, because it's nor the normal process. A lot of the what us had, had to do with our logistics and what we would screw up, which happened. Oh, yeah. And so I think generally speaking, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, but you know, again, uh, I can completely sympathize that operational people um, don't want to ask patients because they will have to react to it, and not only operationally. In general, you know, if you ask, you have to react to the question or ignore it, which is in reverse. Yeah. If you don't ask, you ignore it by default. Yeah. No, I, I accept that. Lily has a, lot, a good short history of actually bringing patients in to react to protocol designs. This yeah. didn't need that to some degree because no, no, it was I, more I agree. And, and what happened to this? You were one of the first that... Colab still exists. It's going strong and we've expanded it. Okay. Yeah, I, I think this is a, yeah. It's a tricky thing at the end. And, and I think what we've sort of uncovered in these conversations is that I, I would put a little less of a, a sharp point on it than Tomas did, which is to not say that we haven't asked patients because we're arrogant, but I think we're all pretty rational. And when you are in a system that doesn't incentivize enhancing complexity by asking individuals what they think about things, right? the whole point of the clinical trials can we flatten the world to the point where we can compare placebo the best medicine ever, with the medicine we want to test? And can we flatten out all the other complexities so that we get a nice, clean signal of medicine versus placebo? And, and the reality, again, that, that we sort of reveal in this digital world and that we reveal in incorporating patient voice, patient preference, individuality into trials, is that that flattened model where you've just got, where you're essentially feeding placebo and drug into a system that's completely simplified to knock out all the other variability isn't real. And that our, the arrogance, perhaps, was the conceit that we could create such a system. I, you know, t I, I know you're very provocative, and I, lo I love that about you. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, we could do better than brick-and-mortar trials, but to call them just sad uniformly, would, would be an indictment of the good medicines that are out there already. Like, how did those things get approved and they work? Not, not every single one's an awesome medicine, but some of them are. And, you know, to the extent that they got approved through brick and mortar means that's not, a, the, the, it's not the best way to, 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 to do research, but it's, it is delivering some medicines. We can always do better, and that's why this conference is here. Yes, we can. <laughs> anyway. It's a binary, either better or much better. You have to uh, pick one. Anyway, thank you, and uh, have a good rest of the We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the 2018 Mobile and Clinical Trials Conference. The 2019 Mobile and Clinical Trials Conference takes place September 16th in Boston. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. And for getting to the end of this podcast, take advantage of a 10% discount with code MRADIO. Again, that's a 10% discount with code M Radio, and the website is theconferenceforum.org. Thanks, everyone.